Well, it's good to be back among you. I'm glad to have the privilege to share the service with you today and to share something from God's Word. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. And while you're finding your place there, again, I want to thank uh, our pastor, Pastor Noel, for the privilege of being here today. You may recall uh, when we were looking for a pastor, I said to you that I would hope our pastor search committee would find somebody who loves our people and uh, who loves God's word and preaches God's word and and has shorter sermons and is better looking than I am. (laughs) And three out of four isn't that bad, is it? (laughs) I'm not going to say which of the four I was referring to. You can do that yourself, but uh, I have to be careful. He may be watching today over the live feed, but... uh, Uh, You know, I was a pastor for 51 years, and uh, for 51 years, I never had anyone that I could call my pastor until Pastor Noel came. So now I have a pastor, and you do too. Well, he's a humdinger, isn't he? Whatever that may mean. Well, today I want to share some thoughts with you about when worship becomes exciting And uh, so let's look at John chapter 20, uh, beginning with verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of many, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. The psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a paraphrase of the Holy Scriptures, translates this, My heart leaped for joy. When they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. What kind of uh, heart did you have this morning as you came to worship the Lord? Were you excited about coming? 
was your heart leaping for joy to know that you lived in a country where you had the freedom to worship the Lord according to the dictates of your heart and you came with excitement in your heart or did you come with uh, dragging your feet and saying, well, my wife made me come or we fussed with the kids on the car on the way here or, or what was your attitude? What was the spirit of your heart and of your mind as you came to the Lord's house this day? I would trust and pray that it would be one of excitement that it would be a spirit of gladness that we are here in the Lord's house today to worship him. The church has always played an important role in my life ever since I was an eight-year-old child. I don't remember a whole lot about going to church, but I went to church. My mother was a nursery worker in our home church, and uh, especially on Sunday nights, instead of going into the auditorium, I would go to the nursery and sit in a little chair and eat right uh, uh, rich uh, crackers and drink (laughs) Kool-Aid. We had an intercom and you could hear uh, the pastor's message. I don't remember a single word that he said, but there was something about just being in God's house, just being even it was in the nursery, eating rich crackers and drinking Kool-Aid. I felt right at home. When I was eight years old, the Lord saved me and I was baptized in my home church. When I was 17, God called me to preach as a result of my coming to church and listening to the pastor and the Sunday school teachers sharing with me and guiding me and the Lord using them to form my life so that when he called me to preach, I was ready. So I was licensed by my home church. I was ordained by my home church. It still has a special place in my heart. And I've never had the privilege of a church in which I did not thank God for that, that I could come with excitement in my heart about what God was going to do. So what has to happen in order for a worship service such as this today, for it to be an exciting time for all of us? Well, from this passage of scripture that I want to share with you this morning, I see seven ingredients that must be present. They're not exhaustive ingredients. I mean, these are just seven that I see in the passage of scripture that I trust the Holy Spirit will use to bless and apply it to your heart as well as to mine so that we might leave this place and say, indeed, it was good to have been in the house of the Lord. You know, the late evangelist, Vance Havner, said that when a person comes to church, he ought to come as though it was the first time. You ever remember the first time you ever went anywhere that was an exciting time for you? The first time you went to this game, first time you went to this show, first time you went to this place, how exciting you felt. Vance Havner said, when you come to church, you ought to come with the attitude of your heart and your mind as though this was the very first time you ever had a chance to go to church. You ought to go as though it were the best time. And you ought to go as though it could possibly be your last time. Your last time. So what kind of elements must be a part of a worship service in order to make it exciting? Well, I have them for you there, so let's look at it. First of all, there's the fellowship of his disciples. The fellowship of his disciples. If you would please look at verse 19. In verse 19 it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut with where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus went where his disciples were. And there was the fellowship of his disciples. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple, of course, is a learner, a student. You remember Jesus had come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Uh, to take one's uh, a yoke upon themselves means to be uh, a student of that person that you're sitting at the feet of. Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke and learn from me. Let me teach you. The word disciple means student, one who wants to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. Notice I'm using the word fellowship, the fellowship of his people. Now, most people think when you hear the word fellowship as an after-church social where everybody uh, giggles and gobbles and guzzles and goes home. Well, that's a social fellowship, but I'm talking about a spiritual fellowship, the fellowship of his disciple. The word fellowship means to have in common So we have something in common with one another as we've gathered here in this place. We've all known Jesus as our Savior. We've been saved. We've repented of our sins. We believe that Jesus is God's Son. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We believe the Bible is God's Holy Word, and we study it and preach from it and so forth. We have a lot of things in common, and so we have the fellowship of His disciples as we've gathered here today. And there's nothing quite as, as exciting to know that when you come, you know, some of my best friends, I have other friends in other, other places of the world, but some of my best friends, the friends that I cherish the most are Christian people, people who are members of this church. And for the 35 years that I had the privilege of being your pastor, to call you not only uh, my church member, but my friend, and, and I love you, and I've shared that with you so many times, that we have a fellowship of the disciples of our Lord. You know, when the disciples gathered in the upper room, as it's recorded in this 20th chapter, it was a dark and dreary time for them. All of their hopes had been smashed. Their Savior had been crucified. And you remember as Jesus walked with the disciples down the road to Emmaus, how despondent they were, how, how low and depressed that they were, thinking that we all of our hopes that he was our Redeemer, now he's been taken from us. And these disciples, out of fear for the Jews... What they were going to be, uh, have done to them, maybe they would be crucified just like Jesus was. And, and so this was a very difficult time. You know, when you have a difficult time, you all together with other people. That's what we did on 9-11. Don't you remember that? My soul, I remember when 9-11 happened and those radical Islamic terrorists flew those planes into the tower and, and how upsetting it was and how fearful we were. People flocked to the church right in this very room and we knelt and prayed and we cried out to God. It was a difficult time for us. That's what those disciples were doing. When they were going through a difficult time, they got together. And I, it doesn't say so, but I like to think they were there praying. They weren't just discussing what they're going to do, but they were on their knees and on their faces before God. You know... Uh, I, I like to get together when, when there's a need. I like, to, I like to watch football and baseball and those kinds of sports. And I watch them by myself sometimes, but it's not quite as exciting as when you get a group of people together. Other guys that, you know, like the same things that you do and how you jump up and holler and scream when some kind of play's made. You're excited about that. Well, that's the way we ought to be. I don't ask you to jump over pews and scream and holler and those kinds of things. But this ought to be an exciting time for us as we gather here to worship the Lord. You know, one of the uh, most popular uh, sitcoms on television for 11 years on NBC Network was Cheers. Cheers. You remember the theme song for Cheers? You remember the words? Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. 
taking a break from all of your worries, it should help a whole lot. Would you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Now, I know that was a theme song for a setting in a bar, but the exact same words, I think, could express the feelings that we have in coming to the Lord's house. Don't you want to be somewhere where people know you by name? where they're going through the same difficulties that you're going through and you have a common cause, a common relationship, one with another. How exciting it can be to know that you're visiting and sharing and talking to somebody who knows exactly what you're going through because they're going through that. That's what I'm talking about, the excitement of coming together with your brothers and your sisters in Christ and being excited about it. So there's the fellowship of his disciples. Here is the second thing. There is the blessing of his presence. Notice again in verse 19, it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. He came and stood in their midst. Now, I know because we are Christians and been saved, the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus in the Spirit, takes up residence in our hearts. You don't have to pray for Jesus to come down and be with us. He's already here. He's in your heart, in your heart, in my heart, in your heart. But there's just something about coming together as a family of God, of worshiping the Lord and sensing the presence of the Lord. The disciples were there. And Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, I remind myself of the little girl who loved to go to Sunday school in church. She never missed a Sunday until one Sunday she got sick and she couldn't go. So mama stayed home because she was sick. Daddy went to church. When he came back, he was so excited about what had happened at the church that day. And he used the expression, man, Jesus really showed up at church today. And the little girl heard him say that, and she said out loud, You know, I've been going to Sunday school and church for Sundays for a long, long time. The first time I miss, what happens? Jesus shows up. <laughs> well, Jesus shows up every time his people get together. Now, it says in verse 24 that Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. You ever wonder what happened to Thomas? Where was Thomas? I mean, he was one of the 12. Why wasn't he there? Well, I'd like to use some sanctified imagination, if my way, to to say maybe here's some of the excuses that he could have used for not being there. I'm too busy. I've got a lot to do, and I I just, I can't take the time off to go there. I, I need to stay and take care of business. Or he might have said, I'm tired tonight. I think I'll just stay home. Or he might would have said, I can get more out of things by staying home and reading my copy of the Pentateuch and thinking it all through than by going to that meeting. Or he could have said, if Peter's going to be there, I'm not going. You remember what he did? He denied the Lord three times. And when when we go over there, he's going to be in charge. And he's going to stand up there in front of everybody and be as bold as brass if I know him. And I just don't want to go listen to him again. He Remember, he denied the Lord. Not once, not twice, but three times he denied the Lord. I'm just not going to put up with that anymore. And I don't want to go. 
Or maybe he said it's going to be a dead and dull meeting, a business meeting. I don't want to go. Or he might have said, I think it's going to rain, and I don't want to get out on a bad night like tonight. Or I had unexpected company that showed up, and I just had to stay home, you know. Or he could have said, I didn't know about the meeting. Nobody told me about the meeting. I didn't get a memo. Nobody texted me about it. Or he could have said, there's a Super Bowl game that I want to see at the Coliseum between the Bethlehem Bears and the Roman Gladiators. <laughs> and I've got season tickets. And I'm, I'm just not going to miss that game at the Coliseum. But I think, and this is just a sanctified imagination, that perhaps Thomas was too afraid to go. After all, what does it say in verse 19? Why were they behind not doors, but locked doors? And the reason that was given is that they were afraid. And it might have been the reason why Thomas didn't go, that he was afraid of what would happen to him if he did. You know, the direction that our country is going in, we may see the day when it would be fearful for us to come to church for what would happen to us. Somebody file a lawsuit against us. Somebody protest us for some reason. Somebody arrest us. You know, there are places in this world where you're not allowed legally to attend a worship service and worship God. It's against the laws of their land. And yet we take our, our freedom for granted. And, and so what, what makes... Worship exciting is, is not the pulpit, it's not the preacher, it's not the people, it's the presence of Jesus. That Jesus is here. And if that doesn't stir your heart and make it exciting for you to want to come to church, there's something wrong with your relationship with the Lord. So, the fellowship of his disciples and the blessing of his presence. But notice the third thing, the comfort of his word. Look at it. In verse 19 through 22, eight times, notice what it says. And when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them. Notice again in verse 20, it says, and when he had said this. In verse 21, so Jesus said to them. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, this for 27, he said to Thomas. Verse 29, Jesus said to them. So eight times in the passage, it is recorded that Jesus said something to them. He spoke to them. Does God still speak to us today? Yes, he does. God speaks to me. Now, I've never heard his voice. I've never heard his audible voice. But God does speak to me the same way that God speaks to you right here in this book that we call the Bible. Someone has said that prayer is our talking to God. God's word is him talking to us. Does God still speak to us today? He does right here in his holy word. You remember in the book of Revelation, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor to which this, the book of Revelation was written, when you come to the end of each one of the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, the last words that are written there says, 
He who has the Spirit, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Listen. It may be that God's not talking. It's just that we're not listening. You remember little Samuel, and he was taken to the temple by his mother after she had weaned him from her and and left him with Eli and how he was Eli's assistant in the temple. And one night he was laying on the bed and God spoke to him. Samuel, Samuel. He thought it was Eli and he got up and he went to Eli and he said, what do you want? You called me. He said, no, I didn't. Go back and lay down. He went back the second time. The Lord called Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. He was thinking it was Eli. The second time he got up and went to Eli. No, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. But he perceived that maybe this was the Lord that was speaking to to little Samuel. And he said, when you go back and lay down and you hear him again, you say, here's your servant, Lord. What do you want? So again, the voice of God called him, Samuel, Samuel. Yes, Lord, I'm your servant. What do you want? I believe God still speaks to us through his word. The Holy Spirit taking that word, applying it to our hearts. He speaks loudly and clearly. But the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? So God does speak if we listen. Notice a fourth thing. And there's the assurance of his love. The assurance of his love. Notice in verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Why do you think Jesus showed them his hands and his side? Well, certainly it was in order to to prove that it was him. I mean, here here are the scars in my hands. It's me. You remember Thomas said, I'm not going to believe if I don't see the scars in his hands and put my fingers there and feel them or look at the scar in his side and thrust my hand there and feel it. If I can't do those things, I'm not going to believe at all. But why his hands and his feet? Where did he get those scars? On his hands and in his side on the cross. And I think without any question whatsoever, when he showed them his hands and his side, they immediately remembered Calvary. The sacrifice, the cruel treatment, the beating, the nailing of his hands and his feet to the cross, the spear that was thrust into his side. They remembered the words of Jesus. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So on the cross of Calvary, according to the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrated his love for the world through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That word demonstration or demonstrated is the same word that would be used of a show window in a department store. You ever walk down the street or in the mall, you're walking down the mall, what are you looking at? You're looking in the show windows, the display windows, the, the merchants are putting on display the product that they're selling. Well, at Calvary, God demonstrated and displayed to the whole wide world how much he truly loved them. It was God in Christ stretching out his arms and saying, I love you this much, demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. Not only demonstrated on the cross, but recorded in its holy word. For in the Bible, it says, for God so loved the world, that's you and that's me. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I am so glad that our father in heaven tells of his love in the book that he has lived in. Wonderful things in the Bible I see but this is the dearest. That Jesus loves me. 
And though I forget him and wander away, still, I still love him no matter where I stray. And back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. Oh, if there's only one song that I shall sing when in his beauty I see the great king, this shall my song through eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. Demonstrated on the cross, recorded in his holy word. And then, of course, we know that we can have the Holy Spirit, as he tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, that he smears or pours out the love of God in our hearts. Talking about full of excitement, to just be filled to overflowing in your heart and in your mind with the love of God, just breathtaking to know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of God's love for us. You know, it's heartbreaking when you read in the book of Revelation, the first letter of the seven letters to the seven churches was addressed to the church at Ephesus. And the one thing that the Lord had against the church at Ephesus was that they had left their first love. And as I was going over the notes again today thinking about that, the Holy Spirit just suddenly brought to my mind Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus that somehow the love of God would just grab hold of them and they would comprehend that they would understand the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of God's love. The church at Ephesus had left the first love that they had for Jesus. It, it, it just kind of dwindled down. The, the fire that burned in their hearts over the love of God was going out. Is that happening in your life? Is that happening in the life of this church? God forbid that we'd ever allow the love of God to burn out of our lives. It is exciting to know how much Jesus loves us. The fifth thing is the gift of his peace. Notice in verse 19 again, it says that Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. He repeats it in verse 21 as though they didn't catch it there. He said, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, peace be with you. To be at peace with God, to have the peace of God, to be at peace with yourself comes from the gift of the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he gives us that peace that passes all understanding. Isaiah the prophet said, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. The word stayed on means that you just focus your attention on the Lord and on his peace. And just establish yourself there. And build your life there. The peace of, that the Prince of Peace gives to you passes all understanding. You can't understand it. But we are at peace with God and with ourselves and with one another when we have Jesus living and reigning in our hearts. Someone, I found this on one occasion, I use it oftentimes in funerals, where you take the word peace, P-E-A-C-E, and use it as an acrostic. And let the word letter a, P stand for placing. The letter E stand for each. The letter uh, A stand for anxiety. The word uh, letter C stands for Christ. And the second letter E stands for every day. So peace means placing each and every anxiety on Christ. Every day. I don't know what's going on in your heart today. What turmoil, what war, what battle, what temptation you're struggling with. Sorrow, difficulty, bad news, good news, whatever. You can be at peace when you have the Prince of Peace. Someone has said that peace rules the day when Christ 
rules the heart. Is Christ in charge of your heart, of your mind? If it is, then you can be at peace. Now notice number six, the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. Now look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then he says in verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now what does that mean? Well, there are some who say that gives you the authority to say to a sinner, I forgive you of your sins. But is that what it means? No. Nobody can forgive sin but Jesus. Okay? You must never forget that. I cannot forgive you of your sins. Now, if you sin against me and if you offend me and you come to me and apologize and say, will you forgive me? Yeah, I can do that. Or if I offend you, I can come to you and say, you know, will you forgive me for what I said or what I did? Or what you, and yes. But for me to stand up and say, yes, I forgive you of your sins and you're going to go to heaven because I forgive you, that's not what the scripture is saying. Well, then what he, is he saying? Well, let, give, let me give you an illustration. I've been a, a pastor for 54 years or a preacher for 54 years, and I've conducted uh, almost 300 weddings. 300 weddings. Couldn't talk any about it. <laughs> Sometimes when you uh, are talking with somebody, you ask the question, who married you? And you say, well, brother so-and-so did. No, no, he didn't. You know how many of the over 300 weddings that I have performed that I married anybody? None of them. I've only married one person in my entire life. She's sitting right over there. Right there. My child bride. So what have I done over those funerals? Over those <laughs> funerals. All, all those weddings. <laughs> well, let me go back and give you the illustration. When I stand before a young couple, I lead them in their vows. Will you take this man, this woman whom you hold by the right hand to be your lawful wedded husband or wife? Will you live together after the holy ordinance according to uh, matrimony, according to God's ordinance and will? Will you, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, until death do you part? I will, I will. I come to the end of the ceremony, and this is what I say. Acting in the authority invested in me by the laws of the state of Texas and looking to heaven for divine sanction, I now pronounce you husband and wife. So I pronounce them husband and wife. I don't marry them. It's God who does the marriage. Okay? It's God who does the marriage. I'm simply his messenger boy. I'm the one who says, I pronounce you husband and wife. So when a person comes to me and they want to confess their sins and admit that they need to be saved, then I say, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Uh, have you repented of your sins? Are you depending on him for the forgiveness of your sins and nothing else and no one else but Jesus? 
yes, I've repented of my sins. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. Then I can say to you, according to the laws of God's holy word, and Jesus giving me the permission to say, because you have repented and trusted Christ of your sins, you are a Christian. I pronounce them a Christian. I don't, I, I'm not authorized to make a Christian out of them. I just say, based on what God has said, you're a Christian. You've been saved. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, that he's saying, you go out into the world and if somebody comes to you and says, I want to trust Jesus and I want to be saved. I say to them, well, you can be and you will be if you'll trust Jesus. Just simply what God said in heaven. He said in heaven, if they'll trust me, confess me, I'll save them. And so I pronounce you a Christian and you can do the same thing. This is not something that's just reserved for ministers. You go out and visit anybody, share Christ with anybody, and they get saved. You can say, well, based on the authority of God's word, you've done what the Bible says. You're saved. You're saved. And so that's God's will for us. What else would it have meant by what's called the Great Commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, share the good news with everyone. So God has a will and a purpose for your life. No matter what vocation you may be performing and doing in your life. We're all witnesses. All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. He said, go therefore and, and preach the gospel and share the good news. And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and will give you power so that you can be a witness. For, so go out into the world where you work, where you live, where your neighbors, the employees, the, the people that you work with. Share the good news. That's God's will for your life. And then number seven, receive the Holy Spirit. Look at it in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you say, wait a minute, uh, preacher. I, I thought that the Holy Spirit didn't come until the day of Pentecost. That's right. It didn't. Church wasn't formed until the day of Pentecost. So what is he meaning here? Well, <clears throat> I've only owned two homes during my lifetime. And in one of those homes that I was going to, was interested in purchasing, I had to lay down what's called earnest money. That is, uh, I would tell this guy who owns the house, I, I like this house, I'm interested in buying it, and I'm serious about it, and in earnest, I'm going to give you some money as a kind of a down payment that I'm going to follow through with our agreement, and I'm going to buy the house. So I laid down the earnest money. Now, if I back out on it, I lose my earnest money. But the earnest money just kind of reserves the house for me, that I can follow through with the deal and, and the house will be mine because I purchased it. Now, I could be wrong here. I'm not, as, you know, accurate always, but as best I understand it, I think what Jesus was saying to him, this is just kind of a down payment on what's going to happen. Here's kind of a foretaste. Boy, hold on, because when the day of Pentecost is coming out, the prophecy of Joel is going to be fulfilled, and God's Holy Spirit is going to pour out on you, and you're going to dream dreams and have visions, and, and this is going to be an earth-shaking thing. And it, it was. Flames of uh, fire appeared over the heads of each of the disciples that were in the upper room. People who had never heard the gospel before uh, heard it in their own languages. The Holy Spirit poured out upon them, but Jesus says, here's a sample of what's going to happen. Here's kind of a down payment. I'm going to follow through with the promise. Earlier in the Gospel of John, he said, I must go to heaven. Because if I don't stay here, if I, if I stay here, I cannot give to you the, the promise of the Father. But I'm going to heaven. And if I get to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit back to you. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So, 
Jesus went to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit. But now to the disciples, he said, let me give you a foretaste what it's going to be like. So he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. And he'll do the same for you and me as well. You know, Vance Havner once said, nothing under the sun can be as dry and flat and tedious and exhausting as church work without the Spirit. And it can be. You know, the problem, it has been said, is not empty pews, but empty people. Empty people. Are you full of self? Are you full of sin? Or are you full of the Spirit? The tragedy of this church, if it ever comes to that, will be because not of empty pews, but because of empty people. Empty people. Let's bow together. Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence here today. We sense your presence just as in those days when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. His presence encouraged them. They turned from fear to joy. They were excited that they were in the presence of Jesus. And he filled them with his spirit. Today, we are excited that we can come together, that we can have fellowship with one another, and that we can sense your presence, and that we can be blessed by your presence, by, by hearing your word, and obeying your word, and being filled with the Spirit, and telling other people about Jesus, how exciting it is to be a part of the family of God, to be with people who go through the same things that we're going through, and yet experience the same grace, the same love that you had for them. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you will bless our time of invitation and that those who will hear your voice will respond and will rejoice together in it. In Jesus' name. If God is speaking to your heart today and you need to make a decision, I'll be here at the front to receive you. So let's stand together, please. Andre is going to lead us and you come. Please.